This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. You fixed This Is My Father's World. Yeah, I got interested in that song and the, the man who wrote it, uh, Maltby Babcock was his name, and he was the Billy Graham of his day. He was uh, the, you know, the highest salaried, um, most celebrated pastor of his time. Um, there's a church named after him up in New England someplace. I mean, he was a remarkable, remarkable guy. His sermons are really, you know, groundbreaking and great imagination and... Um, and he went to, um, and I can't remember the year, 1901 or something. I used to know all these dates, but I forgot them. But he went to Israel at one point, and um, every day he wrote back a letter to the elders in his church telling them what he'd seen that day. And you can, get, you can read those letters. It's called, the book is called Letters from Egypt and Palestine by Maltby Babcock. It's a free download uh, from Princeton University Library. And so, but, and it's fascinating. He's just, he's just a fascinating person. Anyway, the, what I want to share was on the way home from uh, Israel, he got sick. And Cyprus, they led him off at Cyprus, and he was a victim of suicide. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking when you read his writings. There are other writings, of his writings. Uh, there's a fragments book and... Um, but anyway, um, but when I listen to that lyric, you know, this is my father's world, why should my heart be sad? It's almost like he's struggling with it there. Um, but Maltby Babcock, yeah, a really, really cool guy. Yeah, letters from Egypt and Palestine. I didn't know it was a free download when I paid $80 for a book from an antique store. But uh, yeah, letters from Egypt and Palestine. Okay, we're in 12... Uh, 1212, <coughs> triumphal entry, the so-called triumphal entry. I told you um, yesterday it was, Israel went from, I mean, Jerusalem went from 50,000 to 250,000. My notes say it went from 100,000 to a million, and I started looking around, and there's different estimates. So the populations of ancient cities are hard to, uh, to reckon, and I don't think anybody, anybody counted them. But suffice it to say, I mean, it's just bursting at the seam to the point that people like Jesus are sleeping in Gethsemane, which is outside the city walls. They've got to go outside the city walls to, to find a place to, to, to sleep. Um, so the next day, <coughs> the great crowd that had come for the feast, because by law, if you live within 25 miles of the city, you've got to come to the city to celebrate Passover. That's just part of the law. Okay. Uh, Jesus lives way farther than 25 miles, but he comes anyway. And so the, the, the hint is that he is a really strictly observant Jew. He goes, you know, he makes that long journey when he doesn't have to. Uh, but, because he loves his father's house. He loves being there, obviously. The temple means a lot to him. Um, uh, they took palm branches. They have to get the palm branches from per uh, Jericho because palm, palm trees don't, don't grow in in uh, Jerusalem. Jericho is called the city of the palms. 
So they get palm branches, so they've come up that big ridge, and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. That means, oh, save. Nah. You hear that nah in there. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is the standard Passover greeting. If I were you know, to see um, you know, one of you and walking down the street, I would say, ah, Michael, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the standard Passover greeting. But blessed is the king of Israel is not such a standard Passover greeting. And Jesus is clearly making a statement by the way he's coming in. Um, we, um, we're going to find out in the next verse that he, he, he finds a, a, a young donkey he, he comes riding in on a donkey. Matthew 21, 1 through 3 gives us more detail about how he sends somebody into the city. I'm convinced it was Mark, Mark's house. Uh, I think they, they have the Lord's Supper. I think that happens at Mark's house. Uh, when, uh, when Peter's in prison, they're, greedy, they're, they're gathering in Mark's house to pray. So, again, I really want it to be that way. I think it's a really cool idea. But, um, but it's... it's some people have said it's a political statement. I don't think it's that. But it, he's making a statement um, because that's how kings enter city. He, he is entering as a king. And uh, the rabbis taught that, that when a king is entering a city, and you see this with David, what he's riding is part of the statement. If he's riding a donkey, that means he's coming in peace. And I don't know if you've seen the donkeys that they have in that part of the world, but they're, your, your feet drag the ground, right? And the idea is you're not going to do any fighting. <laughs> they don't have war donkeys, in other words, right? So he's coming in peace. And, and again, you see this with David entering a city. When, when you're in the city walls and here comes the army with the king, you're looking real close to see what he's riding. Because he, if he's riding a war horse, you're all in big trouble because he's coming in war. And, um, and so Jerusalem, the first time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's riding uh, a donkey. In uh, Revelation 19, what's he riding? A big white war horse. And that the message is, this is not going to be good for the <laughs> enemies of Israel. So, um, it's <coughs> so that's, that's an important detail. He found a young donkey, sat upon it. His scripture says, see, don't be afraid because he's riding a donkey. Don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming, seated on a donkey. So that means peace. And here's a little whisper. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. They had taken their coats off and let the donkeys walk on the coats and shouted Hosanna and all these things. And they imagine thinking back and going, wow. We did all that stuff to him. You see it with John later in, when he's an old man. He says, what, what our eyes have seen, what our hands have touched. He re- thinks back. He goes, wow, did that really happen? It's really cool. Um, now, the crowd that was with him had continued to spread the word that he called Lazarus from the tomb. So Lazarus is still a big part of the story, uh, raising him from the dead. Many people, because they <coughs> had heard the miraculous sign, uh, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And I just saw this this morning for the first time. Then you know the thing about the Bible, you never squeeze it dry. 
I mean, I have read this book a lot of times, right? And I saw something new. That statement, look how the whole world has gone after him, flows right into the next statement when the Greeks come. Um, yeah. So, but this is very typical hyperbole. Pharisees are, uh, they speak in hyperbole. So look how the whole world has gone after him, and here come the Greeks. Now, at this point in the narrative, this is what, when you read a gospel, uh, when you're listening to the gospels, to a particular gospel, 90% of communication is what you don't say. If you're married, you know this, right? The experts in communication say 90% of communication is, un, is nonverbal. So what doesn't John say at this point? What doesn't he give us? And what he doesn't give us, I'll just tell you, is the second temple cleansing. He tells us about the first one. He completely leaves out the second one. And in the place where that should be, he gives us the coming of the Greeks. Now, the temptation, like so often, is to just read right over it. But this is the moment Jesus has been looking for and waiting for. This is huge. Uh, and these Greeks are um, they're, uh, God-fearers. We meet God-fearers in Acts. They're Gentiles who have... Um, come under the sort of awning of Judaism. They're not full proselytes, uh, but they, they, they keep the three pillars, which is prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. Okay? So the, that's who the Greeks are. And there's a, they had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. They, you know, there's provision made for these God-fearers. Um, but this shift is huge. And if you're not listening... Um, you, 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 don't, you don't get it, but this is the moment Jesus has been waiting for. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip. Why? Because Philip's a Greek name. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And at this point, you also got to say, what's left out? What doesn't John say? What John doesn't show us is Jesus meeting the Greeks or talking to them. Because that's not the point. The point is they've come. The, this, this Gentile world is sort of knocking on the door. And listen to Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour's come. Apparently he sees in this moment, you know, what, what has he been saying? His time and night yet come. His time and night yet come. His time and night yet come. And the Greeks come and Jesus, okay, well, this is it. The, th the time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified and humiliated? No, to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Amen, amen. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So there's, again, that's as close to a parable as you're going to get in John. Uh, his death is going to bring this incredible harvest of souls, I guess. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.36 uh, says this is from a collection of sayings. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. And it's almost like Jesus is talking to himself. It's almost like he's saying these words to himself, to me. That's the tone I hear. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. 
my Father will honor the one who serves me. Now what we're going to have is, coming up, is the longest discussions, the longest discourses of Jesus, and he's going to talk a lot about obedience, service. What does that mean? The connection between service and love. Uh, and, and I want to understand how his mind works. And what tends to happen is that he, he repeats himself because he, he's running these things through his mind and talking, talking about them. Um, now is my heart troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify. There's glory again. Glorify your name. Another new idea I had not too long ago is uh, Passover. Passover happens on a full moon, right? You know it's full moon when the pa- it's Passover because there's a full moon. Well, as he's been making his way to Jerusalem, the moon is getting fuller and fuller and fuller every night. Think about that. Every night, when he, before he goes to bed and he looks up in the sky, he knows when that moon is full, he's going to die. This is the, it's something that's me anyway. So. Uh, Now is my heart troubled. Then a voice came from heaven. This is the most neglected audition of God. This is God speaking, and you just never hear people talk about this. But a voice comes from heaven. uh, In in Judaism, it's called the bath coal, the, the daughter of the voice. A voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So now God said something deeply significant. So what does that mean? People aren't going to understand. The crowd that was there heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So the crowd's always confused. Jesus said, like his prayer at Lazarus' grave, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. <coughs> you know, the hour has come. Remember, he just said that. So listen, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. All that's going to happen as a result of the cross. The judgment of the world is going to be dealt with on the cross, right? Now it's time for judgment on this world. The judgment's going to fall on him. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, again, lifted up is a metaphor for being crucified. Stretched out and lifted up. Those are two ways of talking about crucifixion. I, like the, mo- like the serpent in the wilderness that he talked about in John three fourteen, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to, me- to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He's lifted up. You know, he said that to show that he was going to be lifted up. He's going to be crucified. A little whispering. The crowd spoke up. Now, um, where's my note? I had a really good idea that I, oh well, we'll see. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. That's actually Psalm 110, references to Melchizedek. They're confusing Melchizedek with the the Messiah. Uh, So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They know lifted up means crucified, by the way. Uh, Who is the Son of Man? So motif of misunderstanding. Now this chapter contains three warnings. We already heard the first warning. Um... Uh, You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. That's the first warning. Here's the second warning. Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it. 
so that you may become sons of light. When he finished saying, uh, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Uh, my note says the time is growing short. Oh, there's no time left for these kind of esoteric discussions. That's the, the note I was looking for. You know, the people are saying, you know, who's the son of man? Why can he be lifted up? We've heard he gonna, he's going to remain forever. We, they don't have time for these kind of discussions anymore. Okay, we're done with that. In fact, Jesus is about to say, give his last public words. Okay, from that, that point on, it's all going to be. Uh, the last thing he says publicly is, whatever I say, whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. That's the last thing he says in public. So that's pretty cool, I think. Um, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This is to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message, <coughs> and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And if you know that passage in Isaiah, you know the context is the stubborn disbelief of Israel. You know, um, the, Isaiah and the prophets all in general, they reach out to Israel for generations you know, it's not that God is impatient and an angry God. God is so incredibly patient. I mean, he reaches out, what is Jeremiah, over the reigns of four or five different kings, he reaches out to people and they, they, uh, they refuse stubborn disbelief. Uh, let me do a quick sidebar. Um, I'm in Israel and I'm talking to a, a, um, a Jewish Christian and, um, about this, about Israel, and I said, well, and I'm, I'm basically quoting William Lane. I said, you know, the issue is always stubborn disbelief. You know, and I was talk, we were talking about why they wouldn't enter the promised land. I said, it was just stubborn disbelief. And this Jewish guy goes, he, he goes, I don't think so. Uh, he said, they believed him. They just didn't trust him. Uh, interesting, I'm still thinking about that. So the issue isn't always so much stubborn disbelief. They just don't trust him, at least in terms of entering the land. Um, for this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. And again, that's after the prophets have reached out and reached out and reached out. So he just kind of gives them over to that. Um, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. My note says this passage is repeated five times in the New Testament. Matthew 13, 13, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, here in John, and Acts 28, 26. And again, the context is stubborn disbelief. And that's the context here. He has done miracles and still they won't believe. He has repeated himself over and over again. He'll explain things endlessly. He'll use images and repeat them and, and adapt them like the good shepherd, I'm the door, I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm that sort of, all that sort of um, on and on and on. He's, he's, uh, he's done everything possible to, to put them into the situation of belief and they, they refuse to believe. Um, <clears throat> and then a little whisper, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. That's why I think when Isaiah saw Jesus in the temple. And that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. Okay? Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, those are two that we know of, and the, the leadership in the early church was largely 
from the Pharisaic leaders, Paul, people like that. Okay? So they're not all bad guys. They're not all necessarily bad guys. <coughs> but because the Pharisees, of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be harem, banned, put out of the synagogue. For they love praise from men more than praise from God. And Jesus is just talking about winning glory for God. So they are the, they are the negative example. And Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light, he's repeating himself, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And that persistent circumlocution for God, that God is the one who sent him, I don't think we've begun to get to the bottom of that yet. When, you know... And I like the question, you know, ask Jesus, who does he think God is? And he'll say, he's the one who, at least in John, he'll say, he's the one who sent me. And that's mission, and that's trust. It means all kinds of things. I'm, that, that's, that's, a new, that's a new struggle for me. So I invite you into, <laughs> into the world of struggling and, and trying to understand how his, how his mind works. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I spoke will condemn him on the last day. For I did not come to speak on my own, Deuteronomy 18, prophet like unto Moses, but the Father who sent me commanded me uh, what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. And here's his last public words. So, whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. That's the last thing he says in public. Perfect, right? Jesus is perfect. Everything he says is perfect. That was the perfect thing to say to sum up his ministry. Uh, in spite of the fact that no one has believed or so few people have believed and they've misunderstood practically everything he said, he tells, he's telling himself, I said everything the Father who sent me told me to say. So nice way, that'd be a nice way to end the ministry, wouldn't it, John, realizing that you had said everything God had wanted you to say. So 13, this is one of my favorite little images. Now, <coughs> also a new idea for me. Um, the Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. The Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. Galilean Judaism is different somewhat than Ju Judean Judaism. And the differences are important. And one of the differences we're going to see, Passover. The way Galileans celebrate Passover. The Galilean, Galilean Judaism is based in what we call diaspora Judaism. The dispersion, right? After the Babylonians dispersed the Jews. So all kinds of things had to change. And of course, one of the things that changes is Passover. Okay, I'm, I'm in Babylon. I can't get a lamb, right, to sacrifice. I got no place to sacrifice anymore. Uh, and one of the interesting things that the, the diaspora Jews did, uh, and this shows you the Jewish mind, they celebrated Passover a day early just to make sure they didn't do it a day late. You see, you've just, if your salvation based on, is based on getting it right, you better get it right, okay? And so, um, so Jesus and his disciples who are Galileans, they celebrate 
a day before. And that answers the question, when they're trying to crucify Jesus, everyone's rushing around trying to get things done so they can celebrate Passover. Those are Judean Jews. Jesus and his disciples have already celebrated. Uh, They celebrate the night before. So uh, Judean, the Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. Um, And a lot of this I got from Craig Keener's book, his background book on the InterVarsity background book on uh, the New Testament, and it's page 308. So I'm not making this up. (coughs) Um, Just before the Passover feast, now listen to what Jesus knows. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Okay, so he knows, okay, when this is done, I'm going back to the one who sent me. I'm going back to heaven to be with God. Um... Having loved the world, having loved those who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Question, the full extent of Jesus' love, is that a lot of love? That's an infinite amount of love, okay? How does he demonstrate the full extent of his love for them? He washes their feet. He does something small. And I think this might perhaps should be included as a miracle. By washing his disciples' feet, he's demonstrating the full extent of his love. Uh, Mother Teresa used to say, go do something small for God. Because it's possible to show the full extent of his love. That's why a cup of cold water, right? The New Testament says you offer a cup of cold water, a touch on the shoulder. You know, we think, oh, I I can't be Billy Graham and do big crusades and do things like that. But according to Jesus, we can show the full extent of God's love by doing small things. Now, I think that's, that's something we need to be thinking about. And, and I encourage you to think about times in your own life when you've experienced that, because I have experienced that. I've experienced the touch on the shoulder. Someone came and touched me on the shoulder, and I, I sense God's love in a really unique way, just something small. And, and I also, and this is a new thought for me, I just thought of this this morning. <coughs> when Jesus washes their feet, this is not ceremonial cleansing. This is a job that slaves do. They're living in a world where they walk, the roads they walk on, they're donkeys and whatever, horses or whatever, they're walking through that. Their feet are dirty. This isn't pouring water ceremonially over your hands so that you'll be ceremonially clean. This is scrubbing the dirt from between people's toes. He's got a bowl and, and a towel. And I don't know if you've ever been in a foot washing service, um, but it's mystical. To me, there's a mystical aspect of, of everything gets quiet and all you hear is the sound of the water. And, and you also understand Peter, because at least the foot washings I've been a part of, I am fine to wash other people's feet, but I do not want you washing my feet because it is humiliating. It's humiliating to have your feet washed. Now, so, you know, just so, so think about that. So he shows the full extent <coughs> by doing something small. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray him. And we know this from Matthew 26. Six days earlier, Judas had gone to the, the priests, and he, he's got the 30 pieces of silver in his pocket, maybe. He's already got the money. He's sitting at that table with Jesus, and perhaps he's got the money in his pocket. I mean, 
And he is there when Jesus washes their feet. Jesus washed Judas' feet too, right? He doesn't leave until like verse 30 or verse 31. Jesus gives him a piece of bread and he goes out and does his betrayal. So, um, yeah. <coughs> so Judas had already, oh, and also, let me, let me do this one more thing. The context of the washing of the disciples' feet comes to us from Luke twenty-two twenty-four. 24. The context is Luke twenty-two twenty-four, And what does that say? It says that there was an argument that broke out after the meal. They were arguing about which one was the greatest again. They'd argued about it all the way to Jerusalem, right? So an argument breaks out about who is the greatest. I think, I wrote a song about this. It says, Jesus gives up on words. He's just too tired. And so what does he do to show them who's greatest? He washes their feet. And they never argued about who was the greatest again. There's no record that they ever argued about it again. This was a very powerful statement. And as I told you, I think before in the uniqueness of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they know this story. They can't bring themselves to tell you this story. It's too humiliating. It is too humiliating. Only John, all these years later, tells this story about Jesus dressing like a slave and washing their feet, scrubbing the the donkey crap, you know, between from between their toes and that sort of thing. Okay? Point made? Okay. Um, so, <coughs> so Jesus knew that the Father put all things, uh, uh, okay, all things under his power. So he had all that power. He was returning to God. Uh, and so, see, if, if I knew God had, God had put all things under my power and that I'd come from God and I was returning to God, I would get a throne and a ring and I would invite you to line up and kiss my ring. And you do the same thing. But that's not what Jesus does. When he realizes these things, he, so, he got up from the meal, took off his, his mantle. He's got a seamless robe underneath it. He wrapped a towel around his waist, which makes him look like a slave. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped. So this apron of a towel, he dries their feet with that. He came to Simon Peter, and this is one of those questions that expects an answer no, so let me translate it this way. Lord, you aren't going to wash my feet, are you? And Peter, resp- I mean, Jesus responds, I think, through slightly clenched teeth. <coughs> you don't realize what I'm doing now, but later you'll understand. And John has already alluded to that. After the Spirit comes, they understand all these things. So you're not, you don't get this now, but later you're going to understand. No. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And the, the, the Greek, uh, more literal, literal translation is, because the word etern- ionios or iona, ionios, eternity. He says, never into all eternity will you ever wash my feet. That's more literal translation. Never, ever, 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 ever are you going to do this. Okay, Very typical of Peter and his passion. Don't you love, don't you love Peter? Then Jesus comes back, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This is who I am. If you don't get this, you don't get me. This act reveals who I am. And Peter gets it. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, just not, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And again, there's, there's, there's his passion. 
Jesus answers, person who's had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Looking over Judas probably when he says that. For he knew, here's a whisper, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not every one of you is clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, put his mantle back on, and returned to his place. Let me, let me paraphrase this. Do you have any idea of what I've just done for you? That'd be, that would be my way to translate it. Do you have any idea what I've done for you? He asked them, or he, he, yeah, he asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right, for that's what I am. Now <coughs> that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Um, and I think that language, there's, there are churches that do foot washing as a sacrament. I think that's sacramental language. I think a case can be made for the fact that we should be washing. And the, the, the black church that I went to for years, every time we had Lord's Supper, we did a foot washing. They, we always did them together. So, um, so I, your Lord and Master, wash, or Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's sacramental language. I tell you the truth. Amen, amen. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. We know who that is. Once you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is saying, I've turned the world upside down. Masters are now servants, and you need to get with the program. I think that's what he's saying. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those uh, I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. <coughs> he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's from Psalm 41. And only John quotes this. John understands, or Jesus, Jesus and John understands what Judas has done by virtue of a wisdom writing. Remember I told you one of the uniquenesses of John is based on the wisdom writings. So Jesus understands this betrayal of Judas in terms of Psalm 41.9. Um, I'm telling you this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Amen, amen. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Now, this, that, that sounds like kind of a complicated sentence, but what he's doing is he's extending the relationship. He's the, the sent one, and God is the one who sent him. He's extending that to us. We're the sent ones. Um, the, the, Greek, the Greek word that's used is apos, apostolos, um, and it, uh, it means sent one. It was originally, in classical Greek, it was originally a, a, a ship. An apostolos was a ship. Um, but that's almost certainly not the word Jesus used. Very smart people have done a lot of work on this, linguists, so let me just quote them. The Hebrew word that Jesus almost certainly used was the word sheliach. Sheliach. Just spell it, transliterate it like it sounds. I mean, that's what you got to do, sheliach. Uh, sheliach is from the word shellac, which means to send. Um, and it was a very well-defined uh, relationship between the person, who, the person who sent the Sheliak and the Sheliak. And this, this is, uh, these are the features of being a Sheliak. Um, this is how it works. I'm, I'm a rich man, and there's a, there's a piece of property I want to look at. And I don't have time. I want to buy it. I don't have time. So I, I would appoint you as my Sheliak and say, I'm giving you my authority. 
Okay, so go look at this property for me and then come back. You, you are my authoritative representative. So you go look at the property. It's $1,000 an acre, and uh, there's a lot of stones and dead trees, and it doesn't look so good. And uh, so you decide on my behalf that you don't want it. And the decision you make is binding on me. Now, if, if, the, if the property is a good thing and you decide it would be a good thing if I bought it and you tell the person that's selling it, yeah, my, the guy who sent me wants it. That's binding for me. Uh, the, the, the word of the one who is sent is the same as the one who sent him. That's the, the, the role of the Sheliach. And that's what Jesus is, I think it's behind all of this. Uh, and now he has basically passed on his authority to us. We are his authoritative representatives. And we don't take that serious. I don't take that seriously enough. He has given us his authority. Even as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. That's a big deal, y'all. That's a big deal. You don't mess with that. You know, that's something that's really serious. There, there are souls at, at stake. <coughs> um, so... Um, Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Uh, my note says, the interrelationship between the sent one and the sent ones and the one who sent him. That's what uh, he's talking about. After he said this, he was deeply troubled and testified, amen, amen, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, in a minute, he's going to talk about don't let your heart be troubled. He's going to say a number of things that are going to trouble them now. And this is the moment of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Do you know that? The, you know the, the, the poses of all the different uh, characters in that painting? They're responding to this moment when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. That's, that's da Vinci's Last Supper. Um, <coughs> his disciples stared at one another. That's Last Supper. At a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John's circumlocution for himself, his roundabout way of saying himself, was reclining next to him. So he's leaning on his left elbow, and he, he eats with his right hand. That's how you eat in, in a, around a three-sided table. Um, reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and, asked, and, and, uh, and said, ask him which one he means. In, in, by the way, in 21, chapter 21, verse 20, John is going to use this moment to identify himself. So in your margin, if you're writing notes, write 2120 right there, because that's when you find out that this person who didn't said these things is the guy that wrote this book. Okay? Um, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, but just to show you how it works, while I still can physically do it. Okay, here's the table. Okay, I'm eating, right? This is my bathroom hand. Um, John is here, and he leans up against him and asks, you know, ask the question, okay? That's, that's how it works. <laughs> Next year, I may not be able to do that. <laughs> oh, me. Leaning back against Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. One of the dishes they have is called keruset. It's bitter herbs. Okay. 
Jesus hands peace, Judas a piece of bread that's been dipped in bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs are, Passover is all about remembering things, right? The wilderness wanderings. It helps you remember the bitterness of wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus, how symbolic is that? That's a song. Well, Mike's already left. That would be a great song. He dips it in the bitter herbs and he hands it to Judas. Wow. That's something. Um, he says, it's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Psalm 41.9, the person, my beloved friend, you know, has lifted up his heel against me. I think that says, what you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. You know why? Because if they'd known, Judas would have never left that room alive. Right? <laughs> he would have never left that room alive. But the point is, Judas is just now leaving, so he was there when Jesus was washing their feet. He was there for the meal, and he was there when he washed their feet. Okay? That what hasn't always been clear to me, but I think it's important. Um, <coughs> Since Judas had charge of the money... Some thought, it's interesting, they give him the benefit of the doubt. So that, that may, hey, I just thought of this. Here's another little piece of evidence. Judas isn't this person who's lurking in the shadows so that when he leaves, anybody thinks, well, he's up to no good, right? No, they just assume he's going to go give money to the poor because that's one of the pillars of Judaism, giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. So they, they just assume that's what he's going to do. Does that sound like a pretty good idea? I just made that up. <laughs> Okay, so they thought he was going to, oh, buy something that was needed for the feast or give something to the poor. So they gave him the benefit of the doubt. As soon as uh, he'd taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And John just can't help himself with that symbolism, right? Darkness, light. And Jesus has had these long discussions about people who walk in the dark and all that stuff. John just can't help himself. It's just, yeah, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, and you would, this is the last thing in the world you would expect him to say, isn't it? Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He's not thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? You know, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's been telling them, uh, and this is Luke, if you really want to understand the process, Luke 9 to 19 through 19 is the final trip to Jerusalem. And Jesus speaks in ever-increasing detail about exactly what's going to happen to him. He's going to be bound. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be, he, tells that he knows exactly what's going to happen. And uh, so now it's all starting to, uh, to happen. And what he sees this as, death and disease and now betrayal, it's a chance for God to be glorified. I'm not totally sure I get that, but that seems to be what happening, happening. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And this is, um, I think this is the first time he calls them uh, technia, little children. Um, John takes up this name and in his letters, he, he refers to people as little as my children. Um, but it's um, obviously a very tender thing. 
my children, uh, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. That is the fifth time he said that. Where I'm going, you can't come. Okay. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. And that, that command becomes the preoccupation of John's life. When you read the letters, especially First John, he's going, okay, this is love to do this. What is love? Oh, this is love to do this. He's preoccupied with loving one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. All men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You hear how he repeats himself? That's just his, that's his language. That's how he expresses himself. And that's becoming more and more important to trying to understand his character and what he was like and what it was like to hear him speak. He repeats himself a lot. I think that's interesting. So love one another. As I have loved you, you, almost, you, you uh, so you must love one another. All men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. What do you think he's trying to communicate? <laughs> Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? So he completely missed love one another. Because what did he hear? Jesus says, I'm going someplace you can't go. And Peter goes, that's not going to work. And so he completely misses the, the new command to love one another. Uh, where are you going? Um, where am I going? Uh, sorry. <coughs> um, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going you cannot follow but you will follow later. Um, and the, the intuition, I think, Jesus is talking about is death. Um, you're going to come later. And in 21, Jesus is going to arm Peter with the knowledge of his own death. He's going to tell Peter exactly what's going to happen. You're gonna, someone's going to lead you someplace you don't want to go, and you're going to be stretched out. And so when the Romans come to crucify Peter, remember, he has to be crucified upside down. He'd been thinking about it. He knew he was going to die by crucifixion. And when the time came, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. Crucify me upside down. So at least that's the tradition. Um, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And he did. Let's don't, I, I wrote a book about Peter called Fragile Stone. And a lot of that book, I was sort of sticking up for Peter. He's been preached as sort of a buffoon, right? Who always says the wrong thing, always has his foot in his mouth. That is very unfair. Uh, Peter was a remarkable person. The, the disciples really have a corporate identity in Peter. You know, he's, you know, Jesus obviously is over all of them in the 70, but Peter, they have a corporate identity in Peter. Uh, and he's a remarkable person. Uh, and when he says, I'll lay down my life for you, uh, he does. And in the garden, who's the person that pulls the sword out? They've got two swords. Only one person pulls one out, and it's Peter. And um, so I'm a big fan of Peter. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Amen, amen. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times, which is, of course, exactly what happened. Let's keep going. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Okay, that's, that's, he's just troubled them. What has he said to trouble them? First, he, was gonna, he says he's going to be betrayed. Next, he said, I'm going someplace where you can't follow me. 
And then he's just said, Peter's going to deny him or disown him three times. So they're troubled, <laughs> right? They're troubled. So he's responding to that. Uh, and this is apparently the discourse after supper. Judas is gone. <coughs> Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There are many uh, rooms. There are many places to stay. That's a really hard word to translate. King James did mansions or something. Um, but it, it's, there are many places to stay in my father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place, and that's a different word, a, a place for you. So the idea is not that there's a mansion or that, you know, whatever we've kind of put on top of that. The idea, I think the, the promise he's saying is there's going to be a place just for you. This is your place, okay? And he has gone to prepare it. Right now, Jesus is doing two things. He's preparing a place for us. For all I know, he's making furniture. You know, I don't know what that means. And the other thing he's doing, he's interceding for us before the throne, before the Father. So, uh, so he's right now, that's what he's doing. Um, <coughs> so there's going to be a place just for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me um, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. He's setting, this is set up. You know, the, and he, he, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, it's me. I'm the way. I'm the way and the truth and the life. My, my note says he doesn't give answers. That's not really an answer. He gives himself. Jesus has not come to give us answers. He's come to give us himself. We could, we could stop right there, couldn't we? Um, my note says, exclusivity. There's one way to the Father. There are many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus, through no other name, Acts 4.12. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here's the second interruption. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. <coughs> Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Of course, that, he said something like that earlier, and they, they were going to kill him. They were going to stone him for saying that. Jesus is one with the Father. Uh, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, Deuteronomy 18, prophet like unto Moses, who only says what God tells him to say. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least secondary faith, or at least belief on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I mean, you can believe me and trust me, but if you can't do that, can you at least believe because of the miracles I've done that no one else had ever done or could ever do? At least, that's a big at least. Um, I tell you the truth, amen, amen, 
Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I think when he, ref- when he refers to greater things, what he means is we-, we can do things that lead people to Jesus. That's way better than raising somebody from the dead, right? We're, we're making provision for them to have eternal life. I mean, that, that beats the heck out of just raising some from the dead or curing leprosy or something like that. I think that's what he means. He says, you're going to do greater things. Okay? Um, I can't, when I, I step away and I lose my place. Um, I'm, by the way, I'm, this is 1413. Uh, Someone asked me to, I need to keep giving you references. 1413. Um, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be in glory uh, maybe in glory, sorry, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will do what I command. Uh, and now what we're going to have is a lengthy discourse on the bond between love and obedience. Okay, he's talked about, about, about the both. Now he's going to connect the two together. And uh, let's, let me re, I'll let me recap it for you really quick because I wrote them out this morning. I wrote the list out. From verses uh, 15 through 31 is a lengthy discourse on the bond between love and obedience. Uh, and so here, here's what he says. In verse 15, you don't have to write this down if you don't want to. In verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, love and obedience. They're tied together. In verse 21, the one who keeps my commandments loves me. So he said it the other way around. That's verse 21. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In verse 24, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. So there's the negative example. That's verse 24. In 31, he says, I love the Father just as the Father commanded me, so I do. See, in all those sentences, loving and doing are, are, uh, are, are sort of one. If you love him, you're going to do what he says. Um, and maybe it goes the other way around. And doing what he says is an indication that you do love him. Maybe it goes both ways. <coughs> um, if you love me, you will do what I command. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Jesus is the first one, right? And that word for counselor is really hard to translate. What else have you got? Another comforter? Yeah, lots of different words. It's the Greek word parakletos. Para means beside. Kletos comes from kaleo, which means to be called. So the image is it's a person who's called beside you. That's what the word means. Now you've got to determine from the context. There's, you know, this idea of, oh, just tell me what it literally says. That is not how language works. You've got to decide from the context what Parakletos means what being called alongside means. And traditionally, there have been two meanings for being called alongside. The first one is comforter. I'm weeping and I'm mourning and someone is called alongside me to comfort me. And that's so a lot of people opt for that translation. It may mean two or three things at the same time. And the other option is counselor. A counselor, like in a court situation, he stands up alongside you. He's called alongside you to sort of stand up for you, okay? So those are, the two, those are the two, your two choices. And you can choose just as good as anybody. And like I said, it, it may mean both those things. 
Jesus uses, that's a Greek word, but Jesus uses Hebrew words that mean three or four things, and he means all those things at that time, which makes it virtually impossible to translate. You know, unless you know that Hebrew word and you know that it has all this meaning behind it. So I'm going to send you another counselor. Jesus was the first, the spirit of truth to be with you forever. And uh, I'm, I'm about to stop. This is what Jesus says about the comforter, four things. <coughs> One, uh, he's the spirit of truth, even as Jesus is the truth. So even as this is where our Trinity comes from, right? Even as Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus and the Spirit are one. Jesus will breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the breath of Jesus, right? The, it, you can't make us, it's a mystery, right? You can't, you can't graph this. People say, oh, Holy Spirit, oh, that's easy. Or the Trinity, oh, that's easy. It's like steam and water and ice. You know, one thing, three, no, nah, nah. I mean, it's, it's a nice image, but... Uh, um, Martin Luther said, the Trinity is more to be adored than to be pondered. I like that. The Trinity is more to be adored than to be pondered. You're not going to figure it out. Anyway, so uh, he's the spirit of truth as Jesus is the spirit of truth. Two, the world will not accept him even as they didn't accept Jesus. See how they're linked? Three, he will live in the disciples as the Father lives in Jesus. You see? And finally, Jesus will not leave them as orphans. And the word is orphanos, and it's translated comfortless. And that's a pretty good reason for translating it comforter. I will not leave you comfortless, orphanos. I will not leave you like an orphan. And an orphan is someone who doesn't have anyone to comfort them because their parents are gone, right? I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to come to you. And he, he comes to us in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And they're two completely different things, and they're the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I will ask the Father, and he will send you another parakletos, the spirit of truth to be with you forever. The world cannot accept the counselor or the comforter um, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in the Father, and you are in me, and I'm in you. That's this wonderful unity that we have. Okay? Um, I'm in the Father. And you are in me, and I'm in you. Whoever has my commands obeys them. He is the one who loves me. There's the connection between obedience and love. If you love him, you're going to obey his commands. Um, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, this is the third interruption. Jesus gets interrupted three times. This is the last one. <coughs> then Judas not Iscariot. This is probably Thaddeus, the person that we know as Thaddeus. Uh, then Judas said, but Lord, why do you intend to, to show yourself to us and not to the world? That's a really good question. Uh, see what my note says. Um, I, my, my note just says that's a legitimate question. 
<laughs> Let's see how Jesus answers it. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey. Oh, Jesus basically ignores the question. He does that a lot, by the way. <laughs> if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is love and, and obedience again together. He who, lo- he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Uh, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Maybe that's the answer to the question. As close as an answer as you're going to get. And will remind you of everything I have said, which explains a lot, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit helps them remember things that he said, which is you know, maybe where the Gospels come from or why they remember that they did these things to him at the triumphal entry. Peace, shalom, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Now that's a bookend of the very first statement when he said, let your heart, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's a bookend for um, verse, or was it? One? Yes, thank you. <laughs> but did, you did you hear it sum up? That's a summing up. Okay. Um, where am I? Um, you're, thank you. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no effect on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. See, there's the ultimate connection between love and obedience. The world is going to see how much I love the Father. I'm going to do exactly what he told me to do. I'm going to die. I'm going to submit myself to torture and, uh, and death. Um, I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave means let's go to Gethsemane. We're going to leave the city. We're going to go outside the gate. We're going to go down across the Kydron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. So now they're going to leave. And chapter 15 is a walk. He's, t- he's walking and talking. And we're going to see when we come back that chapter 15 has the disjointedness of a walk. You can tell they're walking uh, as, as, he's, as he's talking. So we're going to take a break now.